the Accidental Engineer. Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Alyssa Shavinsky. Welcome, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Alyssa is co-founder at Faster Than Light, a relatively new startup that offers static analysis tools for uh, voters. Uh, in your own words, uh, Alyssa, <laughs> what is Faster Than Light uh, and how did you get there? Let's get into it. Faster Than Light is building super fast, very easy to use static analysis tooling. Uh, static analysis is um, more or less a way to check your code for security vulnerabilities. Um, people use static analysis to check for formatting and for less critical things, but uh, our focus at Faster Than Light is really on securing code. Uh, as for how I got here, uh, I first joined my first startup in 1999 as an intern. Um, so I've been doing this uh, for quite some time. Um, and the truth is, uh, I don't really know what else to do, right? It's the water that I swim in making software and being part of startups. And so that's like this really natural thing for me. I started consulting. That's how this company came to be. Uh, I originally started this company with uh, a different co-founder and we were just consulting and we were only a few weeks in when I was like, hey, the software we're using for consulting, like it's not very good. We should make new software and uh, let's just be a software company and let's hire, you know, my mentor, Brett, let's hire my client. And, and I look back and it's so funny to me, like I couldn't consult. I couldn't do it. I was like, we have to make software. <laughs> let's go raise VC money. Like, let's do, that's just like who I am and what I know and what's natural to me. And I have this inclination where, you know, I want to build products. I want to scale. I want to, you know, be on stage sharing it, talking about it. So a lot of like how I got here is just like, I love making software. I love startups. I love security. And I love working with these people, uh, Brett and Ruben. And whenever I try to do something else, whether that's be an employee or be a contractor, like, I just, I fail at doing anything else. Fortunately, Faster Than Light is off to a good start. Uh, and a lot of that I credit to my co-founder, Brett. Brett previously built and sold uh, eMusic as part of a team way back when. It was like the first, some of the first digital digitizing of music. And more recently uh, built and sold Vindicia, which is a payments company. They sold that to Amdocs for a little over $100 million. So he brings like, a certain stability and gravitas, uh, which I think in the past I'd been kind of quick to move on from things. And um, Brett's a good counterbalance for me here. You hadn't studied computer science in undergrad. And that's something that here on the Accidental Engineer, we love to hear about those kinds of backgrounds. So what, what brought you to programming and coding career? Yeah. You know, I, I was a political science major in college. I was just so obsessed with the idea of how we could live better community and interact better with each other and like how could we form a better society and all of these, you know, like idealistic young person type questions, very theoretical. I was like <laughs> reading Plato and uh, just trying to, you know, my head in the clouds about it. Uh, and it turns out that those questions in that background has become super useful because there's now this real intersection between computer science and culture right? Um, and it can be really hard to catch up on that 
when you know you're an older person, you don't have any background in sociology or in culture. And I think a lot of people are finding themselves struggling with culture questions today. Uh, so just like for what it's worth, my untraditional background, I think, has been part of what's made me successful at navigating some of these challenges, or at least having a strong ethical framework for it. Uh, I took CompSci 105 my freshman year because we had to take three science classes. And that was like supposed to be one of the easier and more fun ones. And I graduated from a science high school, so I wanted to get away from science for a bit. Uh, and it was all about making websites and like the start of the web in 1997. Um, and it was just a really warm, inclusive experience. And there were a lot of women who were computer scientists at, at my college. And so I had this just idea that like computer science would always be there for me and be warm and fuzzy and friendly, if you can imagine that. Um, but that it wasn't like for me. I remember thinking like that's for practical people and I'm I'm pursuing, you know, knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I just, I just want to, you know, I was, I saw, saw myself as like this ideas person. I didn't want to, at the time, I didn't want to build stuff because I had these burning questions and I wanted to answer those questions. And until I had figured out for myself how we should live together in society, like how we should build culture, uh, I wasn't ready to move on and do more practical stuff. Um, I think as you get older, sometimes you you grow out of that. I certainly have, right? Like I consider myself a maker now. Um, I ended up in my first startup uh, just because that's what my friends were doing. All my friends were computer scientists. Um, so I ended up at Geek Core doing research for them. Uh, and then I ended up at Everyday Health again because my friends were there. And I started off in the customer service department helping them build infrastructure, which also wasn't comp sci. Uh, but at some point I got promoted to headquarters and I joined the team as a QA analyst. They just, they needed a QA analyst. You don't need any particular skills besides being detail oriented. And the, the point of all this is I just, I fell into it. It was a different time. I'm from a different generation. I'm 40. And so when I fell into doing this, it was a time where you could kind of meander and fall into being a, a developer and making software. Um, it was only when I was in my 30s that I started to build companies and be intentional about it. And so I think if there's a lesson for people to take away from my story, uh, some of it is that uh, you can be not notable and an older person, and it's not too late. You know, a lot of people spread this narrative that if you haven't like made it, quote unquote made it, for whatever people mean by that, by a certain age, then like it's too late. And I think I'm a good example of that. I was on the cover of the uh, Sunday New York Times business section um, only like two years after I first came to Silicon Valley. Uh, and some of that is that I'd been quietly working behind the scenes in the background. I had the skill set I knew what I was doing, but it's definitely never too late. Uh, and I didn't go to Stanford or MIT. You know, I went to a school where... Um, I have an intern from Williams College now, and he said that they taught him to write very formal emails. All his emails were very formal. It's like so not Silicon Valley. So even though I went to this very privileged school, President Garfield uh, went to Williams College. You know, it's like definitely a place of privilege, um, but it, it really isn't a place that's connected to tech. I just like showed up in Silicon Valley and stayed in hacker houses and like hustled my way there. And I... 
the other piece of my story that I'm willing to talk about and share is that I'm just, I'm not the smartest person compared to other people who want to do this. I'm just, I'm not. Uh, There are people who are just smarter than me. And like my friends from college were like her, like they were all, they're also surprised that I'm uh, in some ways more, more traditionally successful than they are. And it's because like, there are things that I'm really, really good at. And I have my brilliances, the things I can really do well, but that's not why I've achieved the things I've achieved. It's always been because I just wanted it more than anyone. You know, like I went to Silicon Valley and I slept, you know, on the floor uh, just to try to network and to get to know people and to be there. I was like, I'm not going home. I'm not going back to New York. Like I'm here. I'm going to figure out how to build these startups. I'm going to be part of this. Um, And that's a lesson for me now as I try to build this and level up that I have to remember how important it is to work hard. Uh, And I want people to know that. Like, you don't have to look at yourself and say, like, are you good enough? A lot of success in life isn't about if you're the Mm -hmm. smartest or naturally talented more than other people's. Do you want this enough? Will you wake up at six in the morning to, like, go show up, you know? Like, go show up and you will get there. Yeah, no, that's a super interesting phenomenon. And that goes whether you're starting a business like yourself or are a full-time salaried employee is that oftentimes what I've seen is that people just, people quit the job, <laughs> you know, and people worry about getting, uh, getting promotions or getting more responsibility. But what naturally happens is people just give up and, <laughs> and, yeah, and not know. to say that, yeah, yeah not to I, say that you should just wait, but <laughs> this is true too for like who's a good developer. Uh, I remember thinking that I was just a trash developer because I would try to set up like way back when this was more popular, trying to set up like Ruby on Rails, and it was just so hard. It's like 2012, and I just couldn't get it set up. Uh, and one of the programmers who I admired the most, who had invested in my company and was mentoring me, uh, sat down to help me finally get this all set up. Uh, and he tried to configure it and it failed. And I had never, I couldn't believe it. I was like, that's just like me. That's just like me. He failed. It didn't go. It didn't work. Uh, and that's the moment where I would have stopped and thought, okay, I did something wrong. I'm like a trash developer. I can't get it done. And like other people, for some reason, it works for them. No, the thing that made this guy so good, he was like, okay, we try again. And he just like sat there for hours and hours and hours until it finally went. And sometimes you're running the same process. It seems like the same process and again, again and again, like, but eventually you troubleshoot it. And sometimes it's not the same process because there's something different happening on the other end, you know, on the servers for the company, you know, with the program that you're using. It's, you don't see everything that's happening, you know, beyond your laptop. Um, and I see that also at Faster Than Light. I think that Brett and Ruben are really, they're, they're the best developers that I've met. And I've met a lot of developers for what they do. Uh, Ruben is full stack, but he does front end. And Brett is an architect and back end. And why are they so good? Uh, they just don't stop. They don't stop until the problem is solved. They just don't stop, whether that's in front end with Ruben moving things pixel by pixel and like figuring out all the CSS or Brett working through these like very difficult challenges, uh, you know, where you have to fix these bugs and you don't know what's wrong. You have to just like bang your head against it for hours. Um, I, I think this is very inspirational because everyone has the power to not stop. 
everyone has the power to not give up. You can't always, you know, you're, you're given, like you have what you're given, right? You have the, the talents that you have and um, your limitations that you have, the gifts that you have. Um, one of the things you can control every day is if you show up. There, there's this amazing quote I heard recently. There's this guy who I guess worked for Frito-Lay as a janitor and came up, yes. came up with the idea for uh, flaming flaming Cheetos or something like that. And he, and he... I almost cried <laughs> reading that oh, story. Yeah. It, had, it, got, it got huge coverage. I don't know why this, this guy's story has been around for decades, but my favorite line from the story about this guy just coming up with the idea and and you know pushing for it up to the executive level as a janitor was decades later he's teaching in MBA programs and a student asks what what makes him qualified to teach and and asks you don't have a PhD do you and the and the guy says I have a PhD I've been poor hungry and desperate <laughs> and that was hilarious. yeah it's yeah, yeah, and you need to not lose that. Yeah, that's a type of credential um, I, for sure. <laughs> I think about that a lot now because I'm not poor, I'm not hungry, and I'm not desperate. I remember what it was like to be all those things. And so, you know, I used to be motivated by trying to level up and not be poor, hungry, and desperate anymore. And uh, if there are people who are listening right now and you feel like you're in that category, like, good, use that. That's great. Um, and the challenge is when you become, when you level up, and you get to where you have more choices, you know, like I could just go and live in Thailand for a really long time. I don't want to, but um, you, you reach a point where you have to motivate by other things. So I, I think a lot about what's motivating me now that I'm not desperate. And um, I think not being desperate is really wonderful. It lets you think in a long-term way. I think when, when I was more desperate, it clouded my judgment a lot. It made me really hungry, and I accomplished a lot in that hunger. It pushed me. Um, but now, now I'm motivated by wanting to build things more long-term because I wake up, and I'm calm, and I can think straight, and I can think about what I want to contribute. Um, so whatever stage you're in, it's helpful to be self-aware, I think, and try and use it. I, I, think, I think I have a good segue, which is, one of the things that's harder to budget for in just your attention when you're poor, hungry, or desperate is tools like Faster Than Light. And yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a short-sighted uh, uh, being attention-starved that people don't become familiar with techniques like static analysis. So before we get into Faster Than Light, it'd be cool to hear a little bit in your own words about uh, what is stack, stack analysis and where does it find its, you know, most value? Its place, yeah. I This is interesting in light of being, you know, desperate and hungry because when you're a startup, uh, it's very hard to think about security because you're just so focused on if you'll make payroll in like three months or six months. Uh, I used to give a talk on security for startups and my advice was just like try to limit how much data you have. Just try and limit your like quote unquote attack surface uh, because you just don't have a lot of energy um, and resources to do extra stuff. Uh, I think a lot of people, if they're programming in a language like Python, which can be a bit forgiving, 
um, with respect to security compared to something like C, uh, they don't do static analysis. Uh, static analysis is a way to scan your code for potential vulnerabilities. Uh, now I'm gonna explain just for a minute how this works. So, cause it, I think it's really neat. Um, static analysis produces a report, running static analysis produces this report and it flags sections of the code. Now it doesn't mean there's a bug there. It doesn't mean that for sure because static analysis is just like a type of AI. It, it's not a human, it can't guarantee these things. You still need an expert developer to look over and go back to the actual code, knowing the intentions of uh, the developer who wrote it or knowing the other context around it uh, and say, you know, is this a vulnerability? Yes or no. Um, so that's something very interesting with static analysis. It doesn't, you don't know for sure if there's a bug there or not. Um, a lot of our early work of Faster Than Light was being static analysis consultants. This is still some work that we do here and there as we're testing out our product. Um, to bring that expertise to assess um, and be able to, to read out the static analysis. Uh, now, you have to have written the code you need it to run before the static analysis is useful. Uh, and for some people, it feels like security is a bit of like icing on the cake, not the core thing, uh, depending on how desperate your situation is to get things shipped. Um, but that's changing now because we're seeing people feel really responsible for shipping secure code and companies are getting, like it's a big risk to companies to not ship secure code. Uh, something that we've been doing a faster than light that I feel really good about is making static analysis a lot easier to do. Uh, so right now, if you're just an individual developer and you're on a budget, the thing to do is to run open source tools. But the open source tools can be difficult and challenging to configure and set up, kind of like my story before about just trying to get Ruby on Rails up and running. Uh, so we've made it like really stupidly easy. Um, you just upload your code to our website, and um, we've taken a lot of security precautions to protect the code. My CTO would be happy to talk about that. Um, and we scan it for you, and then we give you a PDF readout of it. Uh, and we're charging $19.99 a month right now uh, because we just, you know, I think there's a lot that you could say on the benefits of charging some amount of money just so you're beholden to the right people. Um, and so also so you can stay in business. Yeah. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think one of the, one of the objections people might immediately have to foregoing, well, A, I think let's say they, they are already on board with security. Um, what what's secure about uploading your your code base to another uh, third party's servers? <laughs> yeah, so I think I mean, yeah. there there's a lot of um, there are companies. Well, there are a lot of companies that upload code. They upload to GitHub and they upload to Amazon. But then there are companies that don't, and they tend to be the larger ones. And so if you're you know J.P. Morgan, you're you know some really large financial institution, you you want everything to be what's called on prem. You want everything on premise. Uh, and for that, you know, we can actually do that for you. Just we'll charge more than $19.99 a month. And then we have our enterprise stuff that we're doing. And for enterprises, there are a lot of companies and they just don't upload code to third parties. Uh, as for startups, you know, in our consulting, not only would companies be comfortable uploading code to us, we were just given full access to GitHub repos. I've been, I'm still in, I've been in so many GitHub repos. And so that comes down to trust. People look at me and they look at Brett and I, I'm so grateful. I've developed, I've cultivated a reputation as being trustworthy. Um, Brett also people really trust him. He was an engineer back at PGP, uh, like building the original crypto. 
he was protecting 200 million credit cards of indicia. Uh, and I think if you look at us, like personally, people just kind of, they trust the decisions, they trust us. Um, if you're not comfortable uploading to third parties, like I understand that, that's usually when you, you're at a different scale where the size of those contracts are like half a million dollars a year. It's just a whole other ball game. Um, I think a lot about that, uploading code to third parties. Uh, I, I'm grateful for the trust and we take it very seriously. So I, one of the things that you mentioned earlier that leaps out at me is re- with regards to different programming languages and that perhaps static analysis isn't as valuable to people who use perhaps Python versus... Uh, it's not as mandatory. Not as mandatory. I would gotcha, put it that gotcha. way. Uh, what you're saying is also correct, right? It's not as valuable. That's true. But it's more that if you're programming in C because of the way the language is constructed, the way memory is handled, like static analysis is mandatory. If you are a large company, people are programming in C, like there is no way that you don't use static analysis tooling. You just can't get away with not doing it. Whereas if you talk to a room full of 100 Python developers, are they all using static analysis? Definitely not. <laughs> and a, and True. and it's for a lot of them it's mostly okay. They will ship much better code, much higher quality code. Uh, when we ran static analysis on our own code here at Faster Than Light, we found some vulnerabilities, um, but we hadn't run. We'd been coding for a little while before we ran that. Um, of course, like things weren't live, but it, it's it's just different. Python is more forgiving. Part of what I'm really interested in doing is encouraging people to just level up. So I think for um, a community like Python, static analysis is a way to level up. Like you can get away with not doing it, and a lot of people do. Um, but if you're a junior developer and you want to stand out, you know, hey, like learn how to ship more secure code, and now you could market yourself to work at like banks and healthcare and security companies and um, that you'll stand out. That's cool. And if you're a senior developer, how do you level up when you're already a little bit senior? Hey, like start finding the issues in your code instead of making QA do it. For sure. Oh my God. What a <laughs> understatement. <laughs> understatement of the decade. Yeah. So it's very interesting with languages. Um, we started off in Python because I started off in Python. Python was one of the first languages that I really started um, to play around in. And that's because people recommend it as a good learning language, uh, but also the Python community is so warm. Uh, and so when I started to do more conference talks, I really like focused on the PyCon community because PyCon over the last few years has been a very warm and inclusive space. Um, and so I was giving a lot of talks there. And so here at Faster Than Light, we've been focusing on Python because um, it's a, it seems like a place where we could encourage more static analysis and that's valuable, but also just the Python community has been so warm. Um, but now we're looking at expanding and doing things in other languages. And that's got me thinking about community in these different spaces. Like there are a lot of Python meetups. There are less Java meetups. Java is a really important language, uh, but the community just looks a little different for a lot of reasons. Um, you've got the C community. It's its own thing. Then you've got like Ruby and Perl, like people are still coding in those languages, but they're not as new as like Go. Um, so this is just kind of a ramble, but like I think it's it's interesting to see the nature of these different communities and um, also to see some languages just have different requirements and require more 
structure uh, and static analysis is just not optional. And, and in other spaces, it can be a way for you as a developer to level up and stand out. Yeah, no, I I think it would be, I know that uh, websites like GitHub and Stack Overflow publish surveys of sorts, yes. <laughs> but the, those surveys tend to be uh, plagued with all kinds of sampling bias and uh, might not answer exact questions that you or I might have about stuff like, uh, of all Python projects on GitHub, how many of them, you know, have static analysis? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a difficult question to, to answer. Uh, and then being able to compare that to, you know, C++ projects on GitHub, that, that would be a hugely valuable tool in some ways for guiding decision-making about what to build next or how to build it. Uh, that's the getting at the search index of GitHub or the search <laughs> index of Stack Overflow and really being able to do what you want seems like a very valuable tool for informing the types of stuff you do. Um, one vocabulary that I kind of want to arm our audience with when they perhaps talk about stack analysis with their employer or in job interviews is that stack analysis is, uh, as Alyssa has described, relating to operating on code. Um, and the reason it's called static is because the code is static. And that's in contrast to what's called dynamic analysis, where you actually run the code. Yeah. And both serve extremely valuable uh, purposes for analyzing whether your software does what you want it to do. So uh, there's a certain class of problems that you won't be able to identify from static analysis that you can only identify by running your software using dynamic analysis. But for those who are going into job interviews and are talking with teams that care deeply about testing, that's some important vocabulary to have. Thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. There's a, a wide range of things in the category of testing. Uh, I've, I've been diving into just this one slice, um, but there's a lot there. And for people who want to level up, it's helpful to be able to talk about the range of things and kind of know what's the differences and uh, which ones do you use when. And um, it's a big world. The world of testing. Agreed. <laughs> is so. So one of the questions I got for you about product is, uh, what what type of feedback do people get from static analysis that you guys provide? Oh, that's uh, fun. So we integrate these open source tools, um, and some of the open source tools are actually like just fetchy. Um, and so we've integrated Find Bugs, for example, which is. Um, it does static analysis for Java code, and it has a whole category of issues that are defined as quote-unquote dodgy code. Um, and so we give you feedback that uh, your code is dodgy, and then uh, some more specific details on that. Um, right now, we are doing uh, documentation. Uh, this is like what I'm working on right now about the different, all the different, hang on, I'm trying to bring it up. I'll just bring it up from our website. All the different issues that you can find when you run static analysis. Uh, so here we go. The complete list of Bandit tests can be found on Bandit test plugins. Um, it's things like weak cryptographic key or start process with a shell. Uh, these are basically all different security vulnerabilities. Uh, static analysis at large can tell you also about like formatting issues. It can 
be, you know, it can be noisy that way. Static analysis can give you results that you don't really care about. You might not care about some of these like less critical issues. Uh, what we're really focusing on and what we want to give our users the power to uh, have a lot of control over um, is just giving output that's the most critical vulnerabilities or the vulnerabilities that are most interesting to you. Um, and yeah, it's there's just a range of security issues that happen normally when you code. And uh, I'm basically in the middle of documenting all of this and I'm not sure which issues are interesting to people. That's actually part of what I want to figure out over the next few weeks is like which of these issues are the most common. Um, and so I'll find that out as people start to use the app more and ask me questions about how you fix it. Uh, so one, yeah, I think sure. that's going to be really interesting to me. Like we have all of these different basically security vulnerabilities that we find and I want to make sure that our users are able to fix these issues. Uh, and so when you, I guess, tell all of our users or people who want to use the tool, uh, please go run our tool, uh, find some issues, and then message me. Um, you can email me, Alyssa, at fasterthanlight.dev, or you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Alyssa Beth, E-L-I-S-S-A-B-E-T-H. Uh, and when you find an issue and you don't know how to fix it, uh, get in touch with me. I'm working on documentation about how to fix all of these issues. And I'm also really curious about which of these different, you know, all of these different vulnerabilities, which of them come up the most for people. One additional resource I'd recommend to our listeners is to check out Google's testing blog. Uh, I've found countless numbers of articles that are really educational about how to cope with uh, maybe flaky tests, slow tests, uh, just best practices around QA. I'm excited to read the Google testing blog. I think uh, that's very cool. Um, and soon, hopefully, uh, by us as well. I'm I'm really excited about doing more in documentation. Uh, right now, our intern is doing the first draft, and then I'm going to do the second draft, and Brett's going to do the final draft, <laughs> just writing about all these Python bugs. Um, and I'd be interested what people would like to see in terms of um, from like a more independent startup what do you want to see on our testing blog? Thank you for coming on, Alyssa. It's been awesome having you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.